You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Moore's stolen coin is returned in the case of the Poly Network cross-chain hack. Accenture says the incident it sustained had no significant effect, and the Lockbit ransomware gang who claimed responsibility released some relatively anodyne files. Home routers are under attack. Crooks are offering what they claim to be BCAV source code for sale on raid forums. Magnabur weaponizes a print nightmare flaw. Dinah Davis from Arctic Wolf shares stats on the state of women in cyber. Our guest is Peter Voss of Iago.ai on what's missing in artificial intelligence. Two extradition cases proceed, and the Solarium Commission reports. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, August 12th, 2021. According to Reuters, the Hoods, who stole somewhere in excess of $600 million from DeFi provider Poly Network, have now returned more than half of what they took, about $324 million, leaving some $268 million still outstanding. The Block reports that the attacker or attackers created a token saying, quote, the hacker is ready to surrender, end quote, and shortly thereafter began returning the coin they'd taken. Why the criminals are returning their loot is unclear, but people claiming to be the attackers have begun saying that they hacked Poly Network to make a point about security, or that they did it for the lulls, or for some other more or less good reason. Security firm Elliptic, which has been keeping an eye on this incident, has been tweeting an auto-interview the apparent hackers have been posting. They ask their own questions, which they proceed to answer. It will surprise no one that the questions are softballs pitched to be easily knocked out of the park with a big swing of self-congratulation. He, she, or they did it, first of all, for fun, because cross-chain hacking is hot. So if you credit the auto-interview, they did it for the hack value. One exchange quoted in the Wall Street Journal exhibits a lofty disinterest in wealth, combined with a didactic urge to educate the victims, effectively the hackers' students, for their own good. Says they, I am not very interested in money. I know it hurts when people are attacked, but shouldn't they learn something from those hacks? Another post says the attackers would like to give them tips on how to secure their networks. Reuters suggests a more self-interested reason may have been in play. The hoods bit off more than they could chew. They may just have found that so much money was simply too difficult to launder. 
The BBC quotes expert opinion to the effect that the crook or crooks have also been spooked by the amount of attention their heist attracted. And the message, the hacker is ready to surrender, shouldn't be taken too literally. No one has actually shown up at a police station saying, take me in, officer, I'm ready to face the judicial music. Where would the fun be in that? The AP quotes Accenture as saying yesterday that it had identified irregular activity in one of our environments and immediately contained the matter and isolated the affected servers. The firm didn't say when the incident occurred or identify it as a ransomware attack, but it did say it had, quote, fully restored our affected systems from backup. There was no impact on Accenture's operations or on our client's systems, end quote. Lockbit operators claim to have hit Accenture and to have obtained some of the company's data in the course of their attack. The gang threatened to leak the files if they weren't paid, and as their deadline expired, began doing so. The record has published a screenshot of some of the files that have been dumped, but their assessment is that the data they contain don't appear to be particularly sensitive. Less than a week after disclosure, a vulnerability in home routers from some 20 different vendors is under widespread attack, ThreatPost reports. Attackers are adding the affected routers to a Mirai botnet suitable for conducting distributed denial-of-service operations. Naked Security has a guide on how to determine whether your device is affected and what to do about it. A good place to begin is Tenable's list of vulnerable devices. VN Express says that an offer of source code for some of BCAV's security products has been posted to raid forums, where those who claim to have obtained the code are offering to sell it for $250,000. BCAV says it's investigating. CrowdStrike reports that the operators of the Magnabur ransomware have weaponized the twice- or thrice-patched Print Nightmare remote code execution vulnerability that afflicts Windows systems and are now using it in the wild, for the most part against targets in the Republic of Korea. The record points out that there are two vulnerabilities known colloquially as Print Nightmare. The one CrowdStrike is seeing undergoing active exploitation is CVE 2021-34527. A Canadian government lawyer told the Vancouver court hearing Huawei CFO Meng Wangzhou's extradition case that Meng had committed fraud. The U.S. is seeking her extradition, and court proceedings are now entering their final phases. The AP reports that China's sentencing of Canadian entrepreneur Michael Spavor to 11 years in prison for spying and the imposition of a death sentence on Canadian Robert Schellenberg, convicted of drug trafficking, are widely viewed as retaliatory attempts to pressure Canadian authorities into releasing Meng. In another high-profile extradition case, the Washington Post reports that Britain's high court granted the U.S. broader grounds on which to appeal a lower court's earlier denial of a request to extradite WikiLeaks proprietor Julian Assange to face espionage charges in the States. That case also continues. And finally, the U.S. Cybersecurity Solarium Commission has issued its 2021 annual report on implementation. The report is broadly encouraging. The commission wrote, quote, Last year we concluded that attaining meaningful security in cyberspace requires action across many coordinated fronts. We have seen a great deal of progress in implementing the original 82 recommendations from the report, 
as well as the recommendations we added in white papers along the way. End quote. Some of the recommendations, of course, remain works in progress, including codifying the concept of systematically important critical infrastructure and establishing a collaborative environment. These are complex and challenging goals, the Commission says. Some of the recommendations are being addressed in legislation that remains pending in Congress. The Cyber Diplomacy Act, which has yet to pass the Senate, would implement the Commission's recommendation for a cyber-focused bureau at the State Department. And some have yet to gather enough support, specifically the establishment of permanent select committees on cybersecurity in the House and Senate, and the passage of a national data security and privacy protection law, which the Commission says are unlikely to move forward in the near future. But the Commission says it remains hopeful and that it intends to ensure that its recommendations are ready when the time comes. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Let's talk chatbots. Perhaps I'm just old school, or maybe I've had one too many bad experiences with them, but I would put myself in the category of chatbot skeptical. When I see a chatbot on a website, my tendency is to shut that thing down right away. Peter Voss is founder, CEO, and chief scientist at iga.ai, developers of what they describe as a second-generation intelligence engine. 
He joins us with insights on what AI can bring to chatbots and why maybe folks like me need to give chatbots a second chance. The technology that's typically being used in chatbots today is basically you have some AI-trained system that will try to make sense of what, what the person is saying, and then somebody writes a response to that. So it's like a stimulus response. The mm. problem with that approach is that the, there isn't really any deep understanding and there isn't any you know, memory or history or learning of, of what the conversation is all about. So that, mm. that's sort of the, the current state of, of chatbots um, that don't have a brain. And, and of course, you know, our innovation is that we've added a brain to the chatbot infrastructure that actually can have a deep understanding, uh, remembers what you said earlier, and so you can have a real, a real conversation. You know, I have to say that, and maybe this is just a result of me being in in uh, that generation that came up before texting was the the thing that it is today. But you know, if I see a chatbot on a website that I'm going to visit, generally, I, I'm not I'm not all that happy about that. I, I'm skeptical when it comes to the level of interaction I'm going to get from something like that. Is that is that a common response that you all have found? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we talk to a, a lot of large corporations, you know, whether it's uh, it's banks or retail or insurance or medical, and, you know, they've, they've all implemented uh, these chatbots. Uh, in some cases, they've implemented them and then abandoned them because of, you know, the, the limitations that I just spoke about. Now, of, of course, you also have to understand that a chatbot can be connected to a live agent, you know. So, but you don't know that typically when you see a little, you know, a window pop up uh, for a chatbot. It doesn't usually tell you whether that's an automated system or whether you're actually talking, you know, whether somebody, uh, a real human is responding to it. It also seems to me that you know, for, for those of you who are offering up these sorts of things, that um, there's a very limited window of forgiveness there. You know, like I'm happy to interact with the chatbot, but boy, the minute it gets something wrong or the minute it, it causes me frustration, I'm going to bail. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and so you should. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, a, a, custom, a customer experience should always be good, you know. And uh, if, if it isn't, uh, I mean, either it should, uh, you know, transfer you to a live person who can handle it if it's something that's beyond the capabilities of the chatbot. Uh, but in the first instance, it should just be you know, much better. It should understand what you're saying. Um, and, you know, you should be able to have a meaningful conversation and get done what you want to get done. What about the, the difference between a chat bot that, that makes use of AI, the way, the way that yours does, versus a search window, say, on a website? Is it, is it a matter of having both things available so that people can choose the, the, the way that they prefer to interact with, say, a website? Oh yes, absolutely, and you know companies do that. I mean, they do offer uh, offer search, but you know, search has the same kind of limitations. Um, in fact, in a way, worse, in that it doesn't remember. For example, you can't really easily tell a search window that you 
you know, you're not interested in a particular product or you've already looked up a certain answer and you're mm. not interested in that. So even the simplest of chatbots today that are offered, the companies will advertise them as using AI. So that by itself doesn't really tell you very much. You know, it might have some pattern matching or it might, whatever it has, you know, typically every every vendor will tell you they're using AI. But the difference is, does it really have a cognitive engine or what we call a brain? Can it remember what you said uh, earlier on in the conversation? Does it have deep understanding? Does it have reasoning? You know, uh, can it uh, ask for clarification if, if, you know, you say something ambiguous? So that's kind of why we talk about a chatbot with a brain. Um, you know, they, they all claim to have AI. So it, does it have a brain? Does it have a cognitive engine? Or does it not have a cognitive engine? And, you know, that, that really is, is a huge difference. That's Peter Voss from iga.ai. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Dinah Davis. She's the VP of R&D Operations at Arctic Wolf. Dinah, it's always great to have you back. Um, You know, I know something that is near and dear to your heart is uh, helping women in cybersecurity. Uh, And you've recently, uh, you gave a talk recently and you also did a survey recently on this topic. What can you share with us today? Yeah, um, I was actually fortunate to uh, give a talk at Halifax B-Sides recently, and they asked me to do a talk about women in cybersecurity. And I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, I can tell my story, I can tell kind of the things I think we should do to make it better. But then again, in the same way that I created Code Like a Girl, it's always better when it comes from multiple voices and different perspectives. So I Hmm. thought, well, maybe I should just like send out a survey, right? Maybe I'll get, you know, 15, 20 responses and, and, and see what people think. And how did that go? I actually got over 50 responses. I was really wow. impressed. Huh. Yeah, I know it's still a small number, but I was pretty happy with that. Yeah. And what did you learn? Yeah. So one thing that I had a hunch on was that cybersecurity wouldn't be their first career. And so I asked that question very specifically, like, is cybersecurity your first career? said no. Hmm. And I think I would love to kind of find out those answers from men as well, because I think a lot of people come into cybersecurity that way. But it feels to me like this would be maybe even a bit higher than the men. But I don't have any real data about that. Just a just Mm -hmm. a gut feeling. But but to go down that path, you know, with your gut feeling, because you're you're no rookie when it comes to these sorts of things. Do you have a, a sense or a, a guess as to why that might be? Yeah, I think it's just not encouraged. Like it's mm. just not even seen. So even if we think about like one of the interesting pieces of data that I pulled was like, how, how long have you been in cybersecurity? Right. Mm-hmm. And so how long have these women been in cybersecurity? And like 54 percent of them had been there for under five years. And that was also including a number of students that uh, were going through a cybersecurity program that filled this out. Um, And and then you even look at it and only like 18% were 15 years plus. 
And so I think there's just been this explosion, right? So before this explosion of cybersecurity that really started, I think, in about 2017 with WannaCry and NotPetya, uh, when it became like an actual, you know, super visible thing that people started to actually care about. Um, It was this little niche uh, field in computer science that, you know, had this like connotation of only like weird guys, like doing it, right? <laughs> like, like that, that maybe don't you hold know, back, another, Dinah. Don't hold yeah. back. <laughs> I know that maybe in another life would have liked to be hackers. This is the perception. I'm not saying this is the reality. This is the perception. Okay. Right, right. It's not the reality. I mean, I've been in security since uh, 2001, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> putting myself in those buckets. So, are, are you saying that like the perception was to get to cybersecurity first, you had to go through computer science, mm-hmm. and yep. and that's quite a, a jungle to make your way through? Yeah, it absolutely is. And what I think we're seeing because of the need for this is there's people jumping in from all different places. So one of the interesting things I asked them was like, "What did you do before cybersecurity?" Right, and mm. a lot of them said IT, but like some of my favorites answers here are culinary arts, a chemist, veterinary, hospitality, sales. Right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. these are all things they did before, and um, I think I've even listened to some of your career notes where people have come from. There was a lady who came from library sciences, and I'm like, oh, that right. makes so much sense, right? Right, because I think this. Cybersecurity has so many different roles and they're, you know, you're able to do so many different things, but there's this perception that you you must be almost as good as a hacker to work in cybersecurity, which is just not true. Any any other interesting uh, tidbits that came out of the survey? How did you discover cybersecurity was a, a question that I asked. And I got some typical answers like job, entertainment, news. My favorite mm. answer by far, and it was it, more than one person answered it, was that they got hacked. They oh. got hacked. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so they got hacked and then they got even. <laughs> <laughs> they got hacked and they got interested in it and right. and started to like go down the path of like, well, I want to do this. Like I want to stop this from happening to other people. That was by mm-hmm. far my favorite. Oh, isn't that interesting? I mean, overall, based on the information that you gathered here, what is your sense? Is there, do do you feel as though we're headed in a good direction? To what degree is progress being made here? I think we're making a lot of progress, actually. I think there's more progress in the last five years than we saw in the previous 20. And so that's, you know, that's a good thing. I still think there's a long way to go. (laughs) Um, My favorite quote these days is one from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Someone asked her, you know, how many women is enough women on the Supreme Court? And she said, when there's nine. Because right now or before when there was nine men, no one even questioned it. So for me, when is it enough? When when you have full um, teams of of C-level women running companies and nobody thinks that's unique. Right, right. Yeah, nobody thinks twice about it. It just is. Right. All right. Well, interesting stuff for sure. Dinah Davis, thanks for joining us. No problem. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.